So good to be with you tonight. We gather to meet with God and to meet with God's people. And I believe we've met with God here tonight. He is with us, and it is our job to tend to his presence and stay awake to him. So are you all awake? Very good. Would you turn to Luke chapter 19? We're going to be there in just a little while. Luke chapter 19. We are in our second week, not just of the year, but in our series called Core Practices. We're unveiling five new core practices for the neighborhood church in 2018. Our hope is that we would bring some focus and some intentionality and some kind of fresh vision and ways of talking about things (laughs) that every Christian everywhere should be doing, okay? We just gave them catchy names a little bit. And so tonight we're going to talk about our second core practice, which is love neighbor. Love neighbor. So while you're still turning to Luke chapter 19, I want to ask you a question. Okay? If I walked out these doors and I walked out onto North Garland Avenue and I grabbed the first person I saw walking down the street and I said, give me one, two, or three words to describe a Christian. Okay? And let's assume that this person has never visited the neighborhood church or Freeman Heights or any church. Let's assume that this is a non-Christian, non-church going person. What do you think he or she would say? A word or two to describe Christians. What do you think? Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Okay. Yikes. Next. Sunday Christians. Okay. Perhaps they ain't practicing what they preaching, right? Okay, students, what do you think? If we went to school and said, what are Christians like? What's a word or two they would say? Yes, you don't have to raise your hand in here, but that's a great example of being a student, Haddon. Awesome. What? Brutal. So like insensitive, right? Okay, what else? Right wing. Okay. All right. Well, in 2015, the Barna Group did just this. But they wrangled up a large group of millennials, millennials being born in the mid-80s to the, I don't know, mid-90s. And they said, hey, non-church-going, non-Christian people, we're going to give you a list of words, and we want you to say, does this accurately describe Christians? And here's what they said. Judgmental, 87%. Hypocritical, which is what Aaron said, 85%. And then, Kara, you said right wing, and unfortunately, this kind of becomes a politicized issue. They said 91% agreed with the word anti-homosexual. And then, Haddon, you said brutal. 70% of them said Christians are insensitive to others. Ouch. With the New Testament clearly, consistently, and convincingly telling us To love, 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 love each other and love others. Love enemies, love poor, love everybody. This is a glorious and horrible exercise in doing it wrong, right? Well, how do we love those within the family? How about our brothers and sisters? Jesus in John 13 said, The world out there will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have in here, okay? He says, everybody's gonna know if you love one another. 
how good at loving our Christian neighbors are Christians typically? Well, they get it wrong, and here's why. And they're not really Christians because of this. And they're not because of that. Does this sound familiar? I've said it. Well, we don't need statistics here. We just need anecdotal evidence. A couple weeks ago, Amy sat down to lunch at Children's Medical Center, and she sat down with her Catholic co-worker and her Muslim co-worker. These are both close friends of hers. So this particular lunch, the Muslim friend who had known them for a long time just wanted to sit down and get real and ask a ton of questions about our faith. It was beautiful. Amy's relaying this whole conversation to me. It's incredible. She's asking about Jesus. She's asking about the churches. And then she says, and by the way, why are there so many of them? Because if I go to any mosque, it's going to be the same thing every Friday that the other mosque down the street's doing. And the Catholic friend says, yeah, that's kind of like how we do it. He says, well, then what are you, Amy? And she's like, well, we're Protestant. We're non-denominational. Try explaining 2,000 years of dysfunctional family life to this person. It's hard. So then she says this, well, from the outside looking in, all it looks like is a bunch of arguing and fighting amongst yourselves. And then she said this, and this brought us to tears. She says, it seems to me like the only thing that the two of your groups are united on is their hatred and fear of my people. And, and she said, but you guys are great. And Amy just said, I just so wish that you could say that about everybody. But the reality is we're doing it wrong. We're not loving our neighbors as ourselves, whether they're inside the church or outside the church as a whole. So our second core practice is to love neighbor. And it goes like this, if you grabbed a partnership agreement, which is your way of saying, I'm affirming my relationship to God, and I'm affirming my relationship to be on mission with this church. This is our second core practice, love neighbor. It says this, we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status. Last week, the first one was follow Jesus. This week, the second one is love neighbor. These two core practices are inextricably linked They are inextricably linked because to love God is to be demonstrated by loving others. And if you think I'm making it up, there are multiple places all over the New Testament that affirm this, but just read 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4 in one fell swoop this week, and you will walk away saying, oh yeah, if someone says they love God and hates a brother or sister, the love of God is not in them. Whoops. Then they say that God is love, and anybody who loves others, God's love is made visible and complete and perfected in them. So love of God is demonstrated in love of neighbor. These two, to follow Jesus and to love neighbor, are inextricably linked. The other reason they're inextricably linked is because when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the umbrella under which all of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, can be found? And he took two Old Testament commandments. The first one was to love your God with what? All your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. But then Jesus did something radical. He took another command from Leviticus and he sandwiched it with that one and said, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says on these two commands, so Jesus went for bonus points. He didn't just give them one, he gave them two because they're inextricably linked. 
He said, on these two commands, everything finds meaning and can hang its weight. You can do this, that, or the other, but if you ain't following Jesus and loving neighbor, the whole thing is wrong. And you get statistics like we just saw. So when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he gave these two sandwiched together. The question was then asked, okay, who's my neighbor? You remember this part of the story? Here's what Jesus did. He did what he often did. And he told a story. Y'all remember what story he told? The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is a story about an outsider who loved a neighbor that everyone else overlooked. Y'all remember the story, right? Man is beaten and dead on the road. And a religious person, number one, two, three, walks by and overlooks him. Except for the outsider, Samaritan. He loved his neighbor as himself. And what we've said about that story in our church, because we're called the neighborhood church, and I want to try to shoehorn the word neighborhood into everything we talk about to, to help us live into our name. We say that Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. Right? The question, who is my neighbor, is his way of saying, let me put up the gated community of my neighborhood because I want to love the people who look like me, sound like me, act like me, and come from my similar background and they have my same color skin. That's the question. Here's the problem. Jesus tells a story and then lives the example of breaking down the gate. There is no gated community in the Christian faith. Our world may say so. Our president may say so. There is no gate in gated community in the body of Christ. He has rezoned our neighborhood. And so like the Good Samaritan, every person we encounter is a neighbor to be loved as ourselves, not a person to be discriminated against, hated, or put away. And here's the point we've always got to remember. Jesus told this story in Luke. He told a group in Luke 6, what good is it if you love the people who are like you? I say love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. That's a kingdom love. That's a love that transforms the world. Jesus who said these things, look at this and don't ever forget it. In Luke 19, Jesus lives what he teaches. Everything that Jesus asks of you to do, Jesus lived first. Jesus, it's hard to love different people. I did. I know. Jesus, it's hard to deny myself and take up my cross and suffer. He says, I know. So when Jesus encounters a neighbor that everybody else hated and overlooked, what Jesus does is he sees him and treats him as valuable. Jesus loves him as himself. Let's look at this story that should be familiar to most of you in Luke chapter 19. It's from our good old friend Zacchaeus. We little Zacchaeus. Are you ready? I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, and we're going to talk about this story and what it means for the neighborhood church to be intentional in our love of neighbor. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people 
saw this and they began to mutter, (laughs) he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If we were to ask Zacchaeus, who was a wealthy chief tax collector, Describe the religious people of your day using one to two to three words. Do you think he would have said judgmental? Do you think he would have said hypocritical? Do you think he would have said insensitive? Okay? Ask the religious people who are muttering and grumbling under their breaths. Who is your neighbor? And they point to Zacchaeus and say, is this guy your neighbor? They probably would have said, absolutely not. Because don't you know anything about the New Testament? Haven't you been in some of these sermons where we talk about tax collectors? They are traitors. They are swindlers. They are greedy. They are cheats. And Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So he is over the deplorable other tax collectors. And whatever kickbacks they get, they got to funnel up to him. He's like the godfather, Scrooge McDuck, chief tax collector. He's the worst. And the other thing is, even short people, something completely out of his control, were literally and figuratively looked down upon. In the ancient Near East. Something completely out of control. He was judged on as well. I think that's why it makes it into the New Testament. Religious people. What do you see when you look at Zacchaeus? He's greedy. He's rich. He's corrupt. He's a traitor conspiring with the enemy. The oppressive Roman regime. He's a cheat. He's a sinner. Now, what does Jesus see when he sees Zacchaeus? Jesus sees someone made in God's image. He sees a person to seek and save. At the end of this story, he says, this is exactly why I came. Not just to Jericho today, but to this world to seek and save the people that everyone else has written off as sinners. And to the degree that we go and do likewise to seek and save those who are lost and drowning and dying inside from bitterness and and lack of purpose and lack of community, lack of love, to the degree that we go and do likewise is to the degree to which we're being like Jesus. This is where loving neighbor begins. I believe it's to see them, to see others as God sees them. Zacchaeus went up to see Jesus, but it was Jesus who stopped to see Zacchaeus. Do you love that? 
The whole story builds this tension of this dude scampering up a tree so that he could get the prime position on the parade because Jesus has got a huge following and a huge name for himself. And Emma and I were looking at some of the stories today, and she said, all these people want Jesus to touch them. What's that about? And I said, because he did incredible things when people came by. There was throngs of people, so he was lost in the shuffle. And he thought, man, maybe if I could just see him and see what all the fuss is about. But Jesus stops and sees him. How many multitudes of people were following along behind? How many beggars and poor people and sick people were lined up along the road? And Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. Do you think he saw Zacchaeus or some of his cronies when he entered into the town to pay a tax? Do you think Jesus got cheated by Zacchaeus? Who knows? Do you think he had heard about Zacchaeus' reputation? Hey, the chief tax collector in these parts was bad news bears. But he knew his name and he stopped and he saw him. I think one of the difficulties in our culture is it conditions us to see people in a judgmental way. I referenced Luke 6 earlier. And that's a a verse that non-Christians love to quote. Especially when 87% of them think that we're judgmental. Luke 6 is where Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. And that's hilarious. Why does the King James Version is the one that everybody memorizes? No one talks like that, but a non-Christian sure can quote that mess on you. But in Luke 6, in the broader context of what Jesus says about not judging people, he's talking about, you're going to bring it right back on you. And he says, what good is it to, to love and care for the ones who are like you? That's... Everybody does that. A true God-like love. To be children of the Most High is to love the unlovable. To see the unseen and to look at the overlooked. Will we follow Jesus' example to see the unseen people in our society? Those who are lost in some back corners. The children who have no parents. They're in the foster care system. The children who are struggling and flunking out of our schools. The students who are lost in the back of the cafeteria that nobody wants to see or talk to or look at. Students, will we see the unseen people and give them value and worth? Will we look at the overlooked in our neighborhood? Will we look and not turn a blind eye to the things that break God's heart? Our culture conditions us to see people as sinners and crooked and cheats or to see them based on the color of their skin. This Monday is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And there's stuff going on all over the city. And Emma's been talking about it in school. We've been talking about it at home and we were talking about it. And, you know, I said, how does it make you feel? She was talking about the bus situation. That people had to sit in different seats and had to go to different bathrooms. And she says, well, I don't really feel anything. Which I just pulled the emergency brake up and I said, whoa, I've been doing it wrong. But what she meant was, well, because that's not how it is anymore. And it kind of broke my heart a little bit on the inside. I said, sweetie, I didn't say this, but I thought this. Unfortunately, she's going to realize that we need his message now, today. Also. Because we have this conditioning to judge people. In this church in the past, we've talked about the kingdom of God glasses to put on. To see this person as infinitely valuable. Made in God's image. Loved by him and sought by him. 
there's this song that has been blowing me up for the last two weeks. It's a Hillsong United tune called So Will I 100 Billion Times, or as Alexa says, 100 Billion X. And I've been wearing that thing out on repeat. That whole album is pretty awesome. It's from an album called Wonder. I think it's their most recent one. But the last minute of the song is so incredibly beautiful. And I'm going to sing it for you now, acapella. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that this time. But if you listen to it this week, it builds this whole crescendo of the God who spoke creation, the God who spoke his breath into billions of creatures in this world. He spoke all these incredible things into motion. But then it says, on a hill you created, Jesus suffered and died. And he says, but then you speak and a hundred billion failures of mine disappear. And the final stanzas of this song say this. I can see your heart in everything you've done. Every part designed in a work of art called love. If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. Like you would again a hundred billion times. But what measure could amount to your desire? You're the one who never leaves the one behind. I mean, we could just have an invitation and call it good, y'all. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. The problem comes when we get in the way of those whom he's invited. So for a church to love neighbors is to be hospitable to them around our table. Amen? So Jesus does a very unneighborly thing in the story. And he invites himself over for dinner. If you were to invite yourself to my house, I would say... No, let's go to Chipotle because I'm good at starting laundry, not folding it. But Jesus invites himself over for dinner. It's unusual to invite yourself, but Zacchaeus probably would have never dared even dream of inviting Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was respected. I told you he's got this throng of people. He's a respected teacher and rabbi. So Zacchaeus said, there is no way this dude would go to the dance with me. But Jesus sees him and says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Because look, it was an honor to host this respected teacher and person. So Zacchaeus says, I don't care how much laundry I got going, dude. He hops down and he, boom, knocks open the door. Come, let's do this thing. And just imagine Zacchaeus' house. He was extremely wealthy. So he had this enormous house, this enormous dining hall, probably filled with all of Jesus' disciples because they needed some food too. They were broke. So they all crowd into this enormous house. Zacchaeus probably has dozens of servants or slaves. So they sit down and the judgment starts. Because cities in those days, he didn't go live in the burbs way out somewhere. He was right there. The dining halls would be open spaces in some part. And even still, they would have seen Jesus and his entourage head to Zacchaeus. So somewhere along the mix, the people started to mutter. What did they mutter? He's gone to be a guest of a sinner. 
This is a common critique of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. If you went and read the Gospel of Luke, you would see Jesus doing basically this. Teaching, healing, eating, being criticized. Then teaching, healing, eating, then being criticized. Teaching, They said he's a drunk, he's a glutton. Why? Because he was hanging out with a bunch of drunks and gluttons. Jesus had this reputation of being a friend of sinners. And I just thought, would our church have this kind of critique? If we open these back doors and people were driving past and they see all you lovely people and say, dude, this is a church of sinners, y'all. Would we have a critique that's a hospitable and welcome place for any and all people to be here? Are we hospitable to all people? Or do we look more like that study and the perception of the Muslim co-worker or the non-Christian millennial that we're anti this and anti that. It's not, it's not a policy, it's a person. It's a person to be loved because Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. So are we those who judge Jesus' guest list? It's a big deal to have a dinner party with somebody in the ancient Near East. It's a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of we're brothers now. So now after the crowd's comment, we're used to Jesus responding. Remember? Remember what he did after they said, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Or you remember, there's this other time when they let the guy down from the roof. There were some people muttering about, who's Jesus to say forgive some sins? And then he like responds, boom. He goes, shut it down, Jesus. We're used to Jesus telling a parable, telling some story, some indictment on their wrong way of thinking. But here's what Jesus does. Nothing. I want to imagine that Jesus was sitting at the honored seat at the table, and he, and, he, and he tries to straighten himself up, but then Zacchaeus, like, boom, doesn't even notice him because he just jumps up, and what does he say? What does he say? We're not going to put it on the screen, but look back with me in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus, not Jesus, stood up, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What could have caused such an incredible reversal and transformation in Zacchaeus? Look right here. I don't see any command from Jesus. I don't see any ask of Jesus. Remember when he talked to the rich young ruler, he said, hey, Go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come follow me. And he didn't. He goes away empty hand. Jesus didn't ask him to do this. Okay, do y'all see like a miraculous filling of the Holy Spirit? Some miraculous, invisible demonstration that God has come here. But we do get a visible demonstration, don't we? Because in verse 9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. This house that represents all of the cheating, all of the stealing, all of the bribing at this table that represented all the deals that oppressed poor people and all the deals that put single widows out on the streets. This table in this house for this outsider, he becomes transformed and adopted. Now he's a son of Abraham. Oh man, this got the religious people so mad. Earlier in Luke, he says, what do I care about sons of Abraham? If God wanted sons of Abraham, he could turn some rocks into some sons of Abraham. 
To follow Jesus is inextricably linked with loving neighbor. Love of God is rightly demonstrated in loving neighbor. What happened and what caused such an incredible transformation? It was an encounter with real, unconditional, and sacrificial love at the table of Jesus. And then Zacchaeus loves his neighbor better than anybody we've seen. He bankrupts himself because God has so transformed him because the value of being a child of God is greater than the value of everything else in his bank account. Had anyone shown this kind of value and time and attention and care and seen him? Or do they just want a business deal? Do they just want to leg up? Do they just want to sit down Maybe for the first time, he was seen as valuable beyond his job description and his bank account. Those who have ears to hear should hear. You are more valuable than your bank account and your job description. What transforms our neighborhood? I think it's seeing and valuing and loving our neighbors as ourselves. It looks like this. It looks like meals around a table with people who grew up in a different way than you who came from a different country than you, who came from a different culture than you, who have a different skin color than you, who have a different socioeconomic status than you. But to sit down and share a meal and to have a fellowship that says, you know what, what we have here in Jesus is more valuable than what the world out there says divides us. To transform our neighborhood, I think it looks like meeting needs, physical, actual needs, through places like our clothes closet, which we'll be at next week. Places that take time to build relationships. We see the same people about once a month. It's going to be a long haul if we continue to do this. But I think we'll begin to see fruit when we begin to see not just a transaction, but a relationship with these people in our community. It takes time in mentoring the students at The Rock, spending time with them, maybe not just at Rock in Summer, but to be present to our own kids in our own classes, in our own neighborhoods, in our own streets, to be present. It means giving dignity to our homeless friends. But here's the thing. It's going to take time and presence. And I think that time is one of the most valuable commodities in our culture today. Are you showing your spouse, your friends, your family, your children that you love them by your time that you give to them? And might we put the screen down so we can actually be present, not just there? But here's the problem. This thing costs us That's why we don't do it. It costs us time. It costs us our money. It costs Jesus his reputation. And you start hanging out with these different folks and you don't think your friends and family and coworkers are going to start to grumble and mutter things at you. And here's the other thing. It's going to cost you your comfort. It is so much easier to go to Chipotle with friends you love and always talk to and have fun and yucks with. It's another thing to invite people you don't really know or have any connection to into your home. 
But we can't miss how often Jesus sat around the table with all the people that were overlooked and unseen. And we have to ask ourselves, what is God calling me to give? What's he going to cost to really help? Because this kind of love transforms our world. Real love, like we say in this church, this is on the screen too. Real love is relating to the other is valuable, even at cost to yourself. Who is someone you love? Now, how can you show them they matter? How can you show them this week that they are valuable to you? It's going to take time. It's going to take presence. And for Jesus, it took naming him, seeing him, eating with him. And because of that encounter, that love, Zacchaeus was changed. And he was welcomed into the family. He went from neighbor, an outcast, to son in the family. This is why Jesus came, those final words of our passage, to seek and save the lost. As we begin to wind down, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story of a woman named Darlene. Darlene's the mom of a woman that helps lead the women's Bible study at Our Calling. And Darlene was diagnosed with COPD 12 years ago. 12 years ago, she was told by a doctor, hey, you better get your things in order, you better say your goodbyes because your days are numbered. It's, it's about time. And in the sweetest and gentlest and most respectful southern way, she turns to her daughter and says, well, God orders my days, not a man as she picks up her files and never goes back to the doctor. Which sounds crazy. Except she didn't have 12 days, she lived 12 years. So fast forward 12 years to last September. Last September, things had been rocking along okay, but then she fell and she broke her leg. So she went into the hospital and she had surgery. And because of her condition and because of her age, they put her on life support. And this is when the doctors gather around and they say, look, family, you've got to understand that she will never leave the hospital. And so at this time, you also need to know that Darlene's prayer for many, many years had been, Lord, I'm tired and I love you. Please just let me wake up in your arms. So for that reason, she had a DNR. She thought, when it's my time, God knows it. He's not surprised by it. And let me just wake up in his arms. So she had a DNR. So the family gathers after her surgery in early September to say their goodbyes. And they take her off of oxygen. A day goes by. And then on the second day, she wakes up. And the first words out of her mouth, I guess God is not done with me yet. Hang on to that. Three days later, after waking up, Darlene was taken to an assisted living home. And then she was assigned a lunch table and a lunch buddy. There was just two of them at the table. And she met her lunch buddy. So she goes and sits down and has lunch. And her lunch buddy was a very angry and unhappy woman. She fussed a lot. She didn't talk a lot. But when she did, she was writing complaints against the staff she was writing complaints against other residents. She was grumbling and fighting with the staff continually. 
And when she wasn't doing all those things, she was just frowning and bitter. And meanwhile, Darlene is this <laughs> perpetually joyful person. Y'all know one of those perpetually joyful people? You want to tell them about this? And they say, well, actually, she's the kind of person that like every situation is like, actually, there's a sunny side. She finds the good in every situation. So you can imagine that these two lunch buddies were just two peas in a pod <laughs> sitting in this assisted living place near Sherman. Well, they went on eating lunch together for the next few months. And then one day early this past December, her friend finally let Darlene have it, like told her off had it. And she started saying, why are you always talking to me? And why are you so happy? You almost died. You're here because you almost died. What are you doing? Who are you? Stop talking to me so much. And when she gets it out, Darlene began to tell her about Jesus. She said, I'm here because God's not done with me yet. Trust me, I've been asking him. But I'm here because of Jesus. She started to tell her friend about how Jesus loves people and forgives and how he gives your life meaning. Now understand that for the duration of her time there, Darlene had been praying for her lunch buddy. And our friend, her daughter, she, she would always call her. And before they got off the phone, she says, hey, pray for my lunch buddy. And they would right there on the phone. So while Darlene is telling this woman about Jesus, the woman begins to cry. And she said, I need to forgive my family. And she said she hated the way that she felt. So Darlene began to talk with her more and then ultimately prayed with her. And this woman gave her life to Christ right then, early this past December. So the next day, this is the first day of her life as a Christian in this assisted living place. She said that she just looked different. Like she like got dressed up, she fixed her hair, she carried herself differently. She was walking through the assisted living and she actually smiled. These people were freaking out. So then this woman who once begrudged sitting at this lunch table is hanging out with Darlene all day. They're hanging out together. They're talking about this and that. They're having this time together. And then this woman calls her son and asks for his forgiveness. She goes to bed that night. And the next morning, the nurses came in and they found her in her bed holding a Bible. And she had passed in her sleep. Less than two days after surrendering her life to Jesus. Now, Darlene was supposed to have been released three days before that. She should have not been at the table. She should have not had that conversation with her. She should have been long gone three days before because she had a touch of pneumonia in her lungs. They said, we've got we've to hold on. The day that this woman passed, they checked her lungs and said, it's crazy. It's totally clear. You should go home. Two days after that, two days after her new friend had died, at 5.05 a.m., Sunday, December 10th, Darlene went to be with Jesus because she was tired and God wasn't done with her. 
And what's crazy is she texted Amy yesterday when I was asking her for more details about this story. She said that Darlene, her mom, would have been 85 this Monday. And she loved her neighbor well. And she loved Jesus till the end. And she wasn't mailing it in and retiring. Her final days were used to be a light and a witness to a neighbor that everyone begrudged and walked past and probably talked bad about in the office and probably talked bad about amongst the other visitors and guests. And she loved that woman. And she showed up every day and talked with her. And she probably got spat upon and chewed out and she kept coming back and loving her. Because she had a mission. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And I believe that in our church in 2018, I don't know why, I don't have a strategy, I, don't, I, don't, I just have this inkling, the pastors do, that God is wanting to take us to some level of really truly welcoming and discipling new Christians. Not just Christians who have been to this church or that church and they want some kind of small church that looks and feels like this and they want some new friends. God bless them, please. Let them come and embrace them and bring them into this community. But I believe that he wants to have us baptizing and growing new people who cross from death to life. So may we be a church known for love and not judgment. Known for love and not hypocrisy. Known for love and for not being anti-homosexual or fill-in-the-blank, addicted and homeless and whoever. May we be known for love and hospitality and not insensitivity. And may we commit to love our neighbors as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status. Amen. Loving God. We thank you for hearing our prayers, feeding us with your word, and encouraging us in our meeting together. Take us and use us to love and serve you and all people in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.